0: Margaret Kaneen SC, was a New South Wales Crown Prosecutor for over 30 years and a specialist in child sexual assault law. She was appointed Commissioner of the New South Wales Special Commission of Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse Allegations in the Catholic Diocese of Maitland, Newcastle in 2012. Since 2019, she's been in private practice as a barrister, representing people charged with criminal offences. Today, I'm talking with Margaret Kaneen about the book that chronicles her career, The Boxing Butterfly. Margaret Kinnean, thanks for joining me on The Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Greg.
0: I've got to start with the title of this book, The Boxing Butterfly. How did you acquire that moniker and
1: are you comfortable with that title? I'm very happy with the fact that I'm a boxer for sport and interest and fitness. That's quite fun and, of course, we remember that the great Muhammad Ali uh, floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee, but there, there is another aspect to it, and that was that uh, shortly before ICAC attacked my family with absolutely no reason whatsoever, the then commissioner of ICAC made a speech to uh, young young lawyers and inviting them, if they were sick of uh, proper courts, that it's uh, great fun in ICAC. To go wherever you like because you're not bound by the rules of evidence and it's like pulling the wings off butterflies i didn't choose the title um, my co-author andrew urban came up with it and I, i'm very happy with it and you're a uh, taekwondo fourth dan black belt
0: how does that feed into your life
1: it's been a feature of my life now for uh, almost 40 years uh, martial arts and uh, it's how I met the father of my children who has a martial arts studio. And uh, he, he's always taught martial arts in schools. We, we met when we were both learning from uh, a, a Korean master back in the 1980s, the, the mid 80s. And, and I love martial arts. It's helped me a lot. It's helped me to, to look calm when I'm really worried and nervous. It's, it's helped me to get uh, the frustrations out and just to just to keep things in perspective, the last eight years I've I sort of branched into boxing, uh, partly because I've got an arthritic hip. But so it's kicking's getting a bit harder. But uh, boxing is tremendous. It's a very efficient way of doing your exercise. You can pack so much uh, aerobic and and strength exercise uh, into sixty minutes, and and also it's it's a brave it's a brave exercise. It's one on one it strips you down to uh, the bare essentials. So, so I think that, that boxing is a terrific sport. Uh, of course, you wouldn't want to take too many blows to your head uh, without without a break, but but maybe it's a bit like being a barrister. You get punched down and you get up again. It's so funny with boxing that one stray thought about uh, your day in court or what you're going to do the next day and you, you get it wrong. And you don't necessarily associate any sport really with uh, high functions of the mind. But if if you lose your concentration, you, you lose it. And, and it's a great uh, allegory for life to to concentrate on one thing while you're doing it. Also, it's a great uh, recreation for one's brain or a rest, really, because it's, it's an hour when you can't think of anything else. I want to talk
0: about the introduction to the book by Andrew L. Urban. And one of the things that uh, strikes me immediately in that introduction is... Uh, and I think he states that you, Margaret, weren't part of the progressive legal establishment. Now, is that a, a statement that you agree with? And what does the idea of progressive in the context of the law mean anyway?
1: I didn't really feel like part of the circles that exist. Not well, Most of them I didn't feel a part of. From time to time, I felt Uh, Very nurtured when I've been on the Bar Council and and when I have become involved in uh, certain projects uh, with the law. But mostly I just wasn't so comfortable with having lawyers in my circles of friends all the time. I mix with so many other types of people in my life. And, and I find that uh, fairly uh, relaxing, refreshing. But there are people I know who's who are married to lawyers, who are all their friends are lawyers and they go to every function. And I don't dislike it when when I do it, but it hasn't really been a very central part of my life. Perhaps it was because I was in the government rather than a barrister for so many of those years and and that might put one a little on the outer or, or being a crown prosecutor puts people on the outer I, I sometimes felt that there weren't that many people who related to me but perhaps other people feel that too you can't be popular with everyone the
0: first part of this book is called milestone cases as madam crown among those milestones are there cases that have defined your career
1: when I looked back at the list, I realised that there are quite a few that I uh, neglected to put in, and, and the way that I came up with those were was sometimes I'd just be thinking of one or other of them, and they were important to me for, for one reason or another. I, I believe that I'm most often associated with the bilal scaff series of cases and that they were quite momentous and, uh, and, and the first of their kind for a few reasons. These are gang rape cases. That's right. Uh, There there was a gang of about 14 men, not all of whom were brought to justice, not all of whom have ever been identified, but about eight, eight or nine were identified. Some of them pleaded guilty to various things and five of them went on trial all featured one person, Bilal Scaff, but the other trials featured some of the other co-offenders and he became known as the ringleader. And in many ways, that, that was true. He did seem to be the coordinator of these awful crimes that took place back in 2000, just before the Olympics in Sydney. A
0: number of the cases in that list, the SCAS we've mentioned, the Robert Dolly Dunn pedophilia case, the Butcher of Bega involving medical malpractice, Chabaji brothers for this session of torture. Now, these are all very unpleasant examples of human behaviour by any standards. How do you fortify yourself personally against such horrific acts within a case?
1: Greg, it's very hard to know what I would have been like had I not been working in that field now for so many years, maybe you just get tougher and tougher. I I remember the first time I had to look at photos of a dead body and I had to just do it so gradually. And and before too long, I was literally eating my dinner alongside them. And it does make you uh, tend not to trust many people but that distrust of of the general public is misplaced but it affects you a bit and also the stories of the people who have been the victims of the crimes have taught me and shown me not to not to be concerned not to worry about small things in life it does make you very tough with your own problems and when things inevitably happen in your own life you just think well a lot of people much worse off just get through it
0: When your career as Crown Prosecutor drew to a close, you describe your career as a defence counsel as reformatted. What constitutes the change, I guess, in terms of attitude or mindset going from prosecutor to defence?
1: The change wasn't as as huge as I expected, and I immediately went from, from nurturing and loving the victims in the cases where i was prosecuting the people who who were bereaved by murder or who themselves had been victims of uh, sexual or serious physical violence uh, and and i i did tend to get very close to those people well when i started to represent people uh, who had been charged with serious criminal offenses or any criminal offenses i became close to them too i heard their side And I learned something fairly soon, that when you are presented with a brief as a prosecutor, you have a bit of a scaffold of the events uh, as it is seen from the view of the police officer who laid the charge or the prosecutor who ratified the charge. But you don't know all of the things in between. You don't know all the nuances and all the circumstances. And, And very often, as I have found, very often There are very large mitigating factors or indeed huge areas of evidence which point to a completely different picture. And so I haven't had to change so much because I've got someone to look after again. And and that's been the great reward of the whole of my career, looking after someone. And, And while you're looking after someone else and focusing on his or her problems, you've got no time for your own. It's good for you and it feels good. If the person that you are helping, and of course as a prosecutor you're not representing a complainant in a case or or an alleged victim, you are representing the state, but you still have to interview that person and find out all of the uh, detail of uh, the allegation. And on both sides I, I do that because... Uh, people just open up to me they open up to me in all forms of my life I can hardly get through the green grocery shop or walk down my street but that's nice and and being the age I am now and generation I am now that's probably my role but I don't think you can be an effective advocate unless you can be convincing and at least show that you care and that you are on that side
0: Part of your life has actually been devoted to being an advocate or taking the role as advocate for the law in certain instances. And part of the book is devoted to on the record, so addresses that you've made to various institutions. But I wanted to take you to the Sir Ninian Stephen lecture, which you gave to the University of Newcastle. And there's a couple of things there. You're speaking about honesty, balance and proportion. And I think you go on to say... The danger is that life and logic of the law can sometimes erode these qualities and we must be on our guard to ensure that our senses of honesty balance and proportion remain immune and intact as we develop powerful reasoning skills which render one capable of justifying almost anything so where is the line between almost justifying anything and ensuring that our
1: sense of honesty balance and proportion remain intact It uh, makes me think now about the prosecutorial discretion, and uh, it's important that prosecutors uh, keep things in perspective, that there are two sides to a story in many of the modern sexual assault allegations. Uh, They have changed a great deal in in my time. Uh, No longer are there injuries and it's much more a he said she said situations. And so it's important that prosecutors remember that we're human beings here. Uh, young people struggle with uh, first encounters of a romantic or intimate kind. and it's important to remember and to keep in perspective that that everyone is not a monster that men aren't monsters, for example, uh, as a rule. In fact, um, very few men are rapists. And yet, at the moment, there seems to be some undercurrent of an idea that that men are very wicked in this area, when uh, it would seem to me, from the experience of working in sexual assault now for almost 40 years, uh, men are much better behaved than ever, as a general rule. And the allegations... Uh, it seems to me are uh, of if, if it is offending conduct much more minor than it used to be if it is offending conduct at all, and so it's important to look at both sides of the equation. Uh, who is saying this? Is it is it reasonable? Look at people's lack of criminal record and and remember that when courts are evaluating whether or not someone is is guilty they take into account a lack of a criminal record as um, because that tends to suggest that a person would not offend against the criminal law. And so it's important to look at that before charges are laid and, and not, to, not to prosecute everyone for everything. So it, not to get into some sort of zeal one way or another.
0: And that takes me to an interesting section. If I were a man... <laughs> that the chapter is titled, the legal profession you say in the mid-'80s was a boys' club. Is it still a boys' club?
1: No, no, it's not. And if people think it is, well, they should have been around then. Of course, so much has changed. So many women lawyers now. uh, Bullying is, everyone knows, is prohibited. And bullying actually never was confined to one sex or the other, as as everyone must realise. So it, it was just a boys' club because there were so many boys in it, and so many old men who seemed to be pretty scary and pretty unapproachable. For men and for women, the older one gets, the more that fear dissipates about older people because you're there yourself and you realise that there's nothing uh, really that scary about older people. Sometimes I wonder about why uh, uh, some some not not nearly all or, or most but some judges. Have in the past and even perhaps now have had to be so unpleasant. Uh, it, it's quite unnecessary. Everyone's trying his or her best. It's, it's quite ridiculous. And, and probably it says more about them than anyone else that they really can't control themselves and can't make themselves be pleasant because many judges can. And, it, and it's a pleasure then because you're there with a fight on your hands that you're paid to have. Why have an extra fight uh, with the bench? or indeed with one's opponent, it's terrible and it can affect justice because I've felt this and I know that many other practitioners have, that if the bench is against you all the time, you start being unable to put your point across because you start becoming very fearful. Parties at, at the bar table too should, between one another, keep, keep it civil. It's not personal. It shouldn't be personal. We're each getting paid to do our jobs and so why do we have to do that without sniping and trying to win by some kind of bullying tactic or or uh, sledging behaviour? It's, it's not necessary. I think you were actually accused of smiling too much in court once. Is that correct? That's true. I, I, but I've been in trouble for that ever since I was at school. A lot of things seem to be funny to me, but but there you go. And and why not have a joke in grim circumstances? And there are there are lots of funny things happen in court. And why not just laugh at them? If I'm cross examining someone who says something funny, perhaps an intelligent person. I've had this a few times uh, with intelligent people, people who end up convicted. But if they say something that's funny at my expense, it's best to laugh. Uh, because uh, it laughs with everyone, and you you keep everyone on side, and and the jury to realise that you've got a sense of humour, uh, rather than just having it all on you. But I was accused of smiling. Uh, I, I was upbraided by a judge very fairly early in my uh, career as a Crown prosecutor. I was smiling at the mother of a dead baby. And it was in a case where someone was on trial for killing the child. And she came up and she she got into the witness box. And I just gave her a, a bit of a smile, not, not a huge smile. It's not a funny occasion, but just to give her a bit of confidence. And that judge, well, I, I think it was just to unnerve me a bit. Some of the judges of the old days thought for, for new people, they wanted to put them through the, the ringer a bit to get to blood them or get them tougher or see how they handled it. But he took, took me into the ante room and said, I noticed you smiling at that woman. Is that is that so you can get from her what the evidence you want to get from her? And I said, no, no, of course not, Your Honour. It's simply to make her feel more comfortable. She's here to talk about the last time she ever saw her child alive. And, and I'd become friendly with her. I gave her a smile from just from my heart. And he said, well, you won't do that again in my court. Of course, it was very, it's very hard to comply with those. I've also been told not to thank witnesses. And I, I think I, I accidentally said to the judge after I got a bit of a dressing down for thanking people, I said, thank you, Your Honour.
0: <laughs> well, in any career, there are people that come along who have an effect or have an influence. One of those people seems to be Chester Porter QC. And you actually dedicate a section of your book to Chester Porter. Uh, you were... I gather, adversaries at one point. What kind of influence he had on your life?
1: Yes. Well, I always remember that I I heard about him having been a prosecutor until he was in his late 50s when he had a serious car accident and was off work for months. And uh, then he wasn't briefed anymore by the government. And so he went to the private bar and started doing defence work. And it was defence work for which he was most known because he was tremendous. Chester Porter walks on water, they used to say. He just had the right uh, touch with juries. He could distill the essence of a case and somehow uh, bring about great results for his clients. And so it it struck me as very interesting that that he should have gone to defence fairly late in, in life and done so well at it. So in that sense, he is something of an inspiration for me. He inspires me to try to be good at uh, what I have come to rather late in my career at, at the age of 60. Uh, I'm now in the fourth year of being a defence counsel. It was a steep learning curve and I don't pretend that I'll ever be a Chester Porter, but uh, it is perhaps his career path that I am am now trying to emulate to some degree and and to to try to succeed uh, as he did.
0: As a final question, it uh, refers to something that David Flint wrote about you in The Spectator, and he said, a wise government would today recommend her appointment, speaking of you, to a royal commission to advise on how the criminal justice system should be reformed. What reforms would you like to see in the criminal justice system?
1: Well, I thank Professor Flint for always trying to Shanghai me back into the government, but I don't think I'll be returning. Uh, Reforms to the criminal justice system. Well, I don't like to say too much one side or another. I think perhaps it may be that too many cases seem to me right at the moment to be being run in the courts that someone should look at closely and realise that the cases aren't strong enough. Also, there are great delays in the courts. So uh, it's awful how long some people have to wait to to get their trials on and and much more since the COVID business, uh, which has added perhaps a year or two to, to some people's wait, which was already a few years. So there's delay, but delay perhaps could be addressed by ensuring that cases that are pretty weak or pretty obviously doomed to failure. And perhaps if I'm good at anything, I'm good at picking up a brief and going loser, winner, loser, winner. There, there should be uh, people of long experience looking at cases before people are sent to trial because it is pretty terrible for people who are, who are found not guilty to have had to face a trial uh, which is not uh, backed up by much evidence That's often quite easy for juries and courts to see. And and for people, particularly people who have no criminal record, to find themselves in a trial, perhaps because of an allegation by someone who's not very credible, and that's all the evidence there is, that's a terrible imposition on our citizenry, having to find the money and having to go through the stress and pressure and, and humiliation of a criminal trial when perhaps the evidence is, is not uh, really up to scratch, not the same as, as it was in the past. And, and so the prosecuting authorities should be there as a, as a real buffer between the police and the courts doing the major job they're meant to do, and that is to, one of the jobs is to filter out the cases that shouldn't be going beyond their office.
0: Does much of this delay and what you've been talking about open up cases to trial by media
1: much more? That is a problem because the media uh, reports, of course, on people charged. And then it's years and years before, if they are acquitted, before the media can report that they're acquitted. But by then, the interest has been lost and uh, and the media don't come back. Or if there's a report, it's on page 48 instead of page 1 or 2. That's very unfortunate for people, but, but it's the nature of things. It's not very interesting that people get acquitted. It's much more interesting when people get charged or indeed convicted. I've been talking to Margaret Caneen about her book, The Boxing Butterfly. It's
0: published by Wilkinson Publishing, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.